Life Out Loud is a literary nonfiction podcast series that features real student stories. Born in a John Jay College creative nonfiction writing classroom in the fall 2015 semester, Life Out Loud seeks to diversify the perspectives typically shared in the CNF genre. Our project aims to amplify voices seldom heard through artful truth-telling simply because we believe that all stories matter. We make them, and they make us. You can always listen at lifeoutloudpodcast.com. Hi there. Welcome to Life Out Loud, a new nonfiction podcast that aims to diversify the perspectives typically shared in the contemporary storytelling landscape. We make stories and stories make us. I'm your host, Maoli Hernandez. And I'm your host, Samantha Jones. Today's a special day because it's our first episode. Sam, are you excited? So excited. You don't know how long I've been waiting for this. Today's episode showcases stories that navigate the spaces between worlds. Our first writer is anonymous. The piece deals with spaces between childhood and adulthood, between getting accent opinion and not, between traditional Pakistani culture norms and U.S. culture. Let's listen. I sat in the elegant cafe and rested my head against the rich brown velvet cushion. I smiled to myself. The summer of 2013, I was no longer silent. My older sister sat beside me, sipping on her mint chocolate milkshake while my aunt sat across from us. My older sister and I were both wearing hijabs, not a strand of hair visible, but my aunt wore her black hair in curls falling loosely around her heart-shaped face. I had just flown in the night before from New York to Manchester, England. My family had come in two weeks earlier than I did, and we were all now staying with my mom's two sisters, Rosanna and Roxana. My younger aunt, Roxana, and my older sister, Neil, took the responsibility of showing me around. Of course, our first stop was the mall because both of them love shopping and also wanted me to try the cafe called Nero. At Nero, we talk about the sale Topshop had when two guys about six feet tall each walked in. My sister nudged my aunt and turned around to see. We admired the guy's light brown hair and the strong friendly vibe. The two handsome strangers were probably in their early 20s. Suddenly, my aunt commented, nice, with a smirk on her face while I tried to hide my own. I looked at her, astonished, to which she simply shrugged back in response as if to say, what's the big deal? The big deal was that older women in our Pakistani culture aren't supposed to be looking at men. In fact, women at any age aren't supposed to be looking at men. But my aunt didn't care about any of that. She was a new divorcee, raising four sons alone in her own house her black curls bouncing out for the entire world to see while she went to work as a personal trainer, attended night classes, and raised her kids. Needless to say, many people from our family weren't speaking to her and saw her as a disgrace. We are all originally from Pakistan, but now my aunt lives in a culturally diverse neighborhood in Manchester, England. I love traveling to visit her. I, unfortunately, live in an entirely Pakistani neighborhood in Brooklyn. It's full of Pakistani stores, restaurants, and gossipers. I was happy to be spending two weeks away from all the drama back in Brooklyn, New York. My culture isn't bad. It's just that it sometimes encourages people to force others, mainly women, to live in a certain way. In my culture, the men dominate the women, and girls and women aren't allowed to talk to men who aren't their brothers uncles or fathers if a girl is seen talking to a boy or even looking 
at one for too long, even if he's a classmate who's asking for the homework, or even if she's telling him to back off when he stands too close at the laundromat on Neptune Avenue. The girl's a whore, a disgrace, a banjot, and is sent back to Pakistan to get married. No exaggeration there. No one cares if she's just asking about the homework or for the time. They only care about trashing the girl. The neighbors are always waiting for you to slip and do something wrong so they can bash your name. It's easy to slip in America, where most people expect you to talk and look at everyone, regardless of their sex, like it's no big deal. In America, you can't go about in life without talking to men, especially if you want to succeed. The higher you go, the more men there are. When my aunt strapped on her seatbelt and began to pull out of the mall garage, she eyed me in the rear review mirror. Aisha, she said, you're older now. What do you think of my divorce? I stared straight ahead into the reflection of her eyes in the mirror, studying their chocolate brown, which were surrounded by black eyeliner. Was she testing me? She wasn't. She actually wanted to know what I thought of it. Her eyes said it all. They were sincere, like she knew I wanted someone to ask me how I felt about things. They weren't like my mother's eyes when she confronted an eighth grade me about the gossip going around about me and Omar. In fact, no one asked me. No one asked me if I actually loved Omar or if I was planning a wedding with him. No. No one asked me how I felt about things when those rumors started, especially not my mother. If she had, I might have told her why I thought I was really being accused of loving him. Why I knew I deserved this shame. Why I knew this might be payback. That I felt horrible for what I had done, what I had said, how I made him feel back when we were in the third grade. Back in the third grade, Omar was new to the New York City school system and to the country. He had just arrived from Pakistan when our third grade teacher, Mrs. Waigoda, asked my friend Sarah and me to show Omar around. Sarah and I were told to help Omar adjust by helping him with his homework and with his vocabulary. Instead of helping him, though, we made things worse. We made sure Omar hated coming to school and hated where his family had just moved. Sarah even beat Umar once by kicking his knees until they turned several hues of blue. He didn't even fight back. Not even when his mother came to report it to the school. Umar never ratted us out. He just took it. When Sarah moved to Pakistan, I was left in charge of Umar. I love to lie and say that I put a stop to it all after she left. But I didn't. I spread rumors throughout the class that he ate his boogers. Omar didn't even know the word booger, but everyone else in the class did. We all <laughs> snickered at him. I gave him the wrong homework, and I even made sure he didn't make any friends with anyone in our grade. If any of the other students even tried to talk to him, my look shut them up. I'm really not sure why I took part in hurting Omar. Maybe it was because he seemed so pathetic, didn't know the language, was an easy target. Compared to me, Omar actually 
had it worse. And I guess that made me feel important in some way. Maybe seeing all the female adults around, my mom, my cousins, my neighbors, being dominated by men made me fear the future and want to dominate someone myself, especially a boy. Now, while, while I still could. I never told him I was sorry about it, but today I am. Today I am sorry. And I certainly was sorry five years later as I walked down West Street, my eyes cast down at the ground. The ground was wet because of the earlier rain. The smell filled my nostrils and it was strangely comforting as my mom angrily hissed into my ear the gossip that my younger brother Hamza had heard. I looked into my mom's eyes, the same chocolate brown eyes my aunt Roxana has, and I told her the rumors weren't true, that I didn't love Umar, that I wouldn't dare crush on or even speak to a boy knowing the consequences. Speaking to a boy who is not my brother, father, or uncle is forbidden. You simply cannot talk to a boy unless it's an emergency. I knew that. Everyone knew that. But no one knew why Umar might have an interest in trying to ruin my life, trying to get me sent back to Pakistan. I didn't want to go back to Pakistan and get married to some four-year-old. Was this his payback? Did he figure out how he could now use our culture against me? Did he plan this all to make me look like I was a disgrace to my family, my friends, my culture? Was I a disgrace? I wondered as I thought back to what I had done to him. As I realized it was my turn to play the victim and him the bully, I wondered if I deserved this payback, if I should have told my mom what I had done to deserve this, if that would have helped my case, if she would have understood why I had bullied him in the first place, why he might want to now hurt me in return. I wondered if, if she would understand why I had been so mean, if she would forgive me for treating someone like that, if she would care about why I was now being bullied in the 8th grade like Omar's mom cared back in the 3rd grade. But I never found out. Because I didn't say anything. Just like Omar didn't say anything back in the third grade. I didn't say anything because she didn't ask. My mom never asked me if the rumors were true. And neither did my dad or my brother. After that day, we never spoke about it again. We didn't even acknowledge it. Instead, they supervised everything I did. For a whole school year, they made sure there was always someone next to me in public watching my every move, watching to make sure I didn't shame them as I banchoed with my interest in Umar, like I really gave a shit about him other than feeling badly that I once made his life hell. No one asked if I did love Umar or if I had even talked to him recently or why he might want to say that I had. No one asked me anything. They never did. Until that summer of 2013, in Manchester, England, when she, my outcast aunt, her black curls out for the whole world to see, asked me for my opinion on her divorce. Wow, what, what a brave piece. Um, the writer is actually here with us today. Thank you so much for being uh, with us um, We'll, we'll, um, we would love to ask you a couple of questions. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. Thanks. Um, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, your piece had a lot to do with uh, male domination in your culture and you wanting to overcome 
uh, that domination, which is perfect for this month because, as you know, it's the Women's History Month. Uh, my question is, how hard is it to balance two different lifestyles in your town and away from home? It's really hard to balance two different lifestyles because, um, as we know, we're in like the 21st century and we all have iPhones and, well, we have male classmates, of course. So um, whenever I have a male classmate asks me for my number, I have to give it to him. You know, it's weird if I don't. So when he texts me, I always have to change his name to a girl's name so my parents don't suspect anything so it's really weird when I can't remember who the person is and whether if it's actually a girl or a boy <laughs> so it's really hard to balance um, my cu American culture and then the Pakistani culture so even if um, he's texting me for a group project or just a tedious assignment I still have to you know be very careful not to show the not to put the real name on the um, contact and also to make sure like nobody else has my phone in case they the my classmate or just somebody another male colleague or somebody sends me a text message or funny picture so yeah one of the reasons why I love the, this piece and I think it's brilliant is because you show us that you can be critical of your culture without being disrespectful of your Pakistani culture how hard was writing about gender roles in Pakistan Pakistani culture from the, a critical voice in your piece? It was really hard because, well, I love my culture, but the, there's these things that really annoy me. So when I was writing this piece, I was like, just looking back at it, and I was like, wow, my culture is really messed up, but yet I still love it because of the things we do. So it was it was a really hard process for me, just writing it on paper and not like letting, not voicing my opinion about how things are. It was really difficult, and I still have to hide my paper. Yeah, um, that's what we say. It's very, it's a very brave piece. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so you briefly address child marriage when you say, I didn't want to go back to Pakistan and get married to some 40-year-old. Have you ever voiced these concerns to your aunt or any other family members? If not, why not? I'm not brave, that brave enough to voice such opinions because, you know, I just feel like I might jinx it and I actually might get married to some 40-year-old. Um, it doesn't happen that often. But I just heard um, my sister's friend, she just got married to somebody and her parents aren't letting her come back to the country unless she has a child with a guy. So it's really like it might not happen in this culture and it might not happen in all Pakistani cultures. But in some like the small town villages that still haven't developed in the 21st uh, century, it's really important to, you know, understand what goes on and how sensitive things like these might be. When I listen to the piece, I feel that your bullying Omar served as a means to challenge your discontent with the role of woman in Pakistani culture. How do you feel now about the bullying? Do you feel that an apology is necessary on either your part or his part? I definitely feel guilty because I still I still live in the same neighborhood and I still see him. So anytime I see him, only thing I can see in his eyes or just like on his facial expression is like the fear of the third grade and the bullying and the harassing that happened at that time but then at the same time I was victimized too so then it's like a little like why am I feeling sorry for you if you did the same thing to me but I definitely apologize again for what I did in the third grade and I feel like I oh I I am owed an apology too so he didn't apologize to you no never wow they all act like it never happened never wow that's intense 
I would take my apology back. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> um, the next question. Um, so can you tell us about uh, what did it mean to you that your aunt asked for your opinion? It meant a lot to me because the question that she asked about her divorce, it's not something that you just ask a child. And also the fact that it's something that's outcast, looked upon. Um, it was really important to me because it made me feel like I was actually part of something and that, you know, it's not just society doesn't always rule in uh, Pakistani uh, culture favor. It, it There's Americanism and Britishism in there, too, that it's OK to be divorced if your husband is abusive. What would you like your listeners to come away with your, from your piece? Uh, first thing I would definitely say, do not bully anybody. Karma. um but other than that that if you ever feel like oppression uh you feel oppressed because of things like these voice your opinion that's what i would say i wish like if i were if i had a chance to go back i would definitely say something to my parents like you know i would say something to my mom i would say something to to my brothers and my sisters and my uncles that you know i didn't do this and he's just being an ass he's just (laughs) getting um back at me for something that I did a long time ago. Yeah, it was wrong, but still, it was not It was wrong of him to go ahead and use my culture against me. So what I would say is, one, don't bully anybody, and two, voice your opinion when you feel oppressed. That's some great advice. Thank you so much for being on the show. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you. The pleasure was mine. Our next story is by Eduard Serrate, a 21-year-old lightweight Bolivian-American from Queens, New York who is currently a junior at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, where he is majoring in international criminal justice with a minor in writing. But not in school, you can find Edward handing out towels to NYC's elites at Equinox front desk. Aside from work in school, Edward dances with a nonprofit organization called Fraternidad Cultural Pasión Boliviana, Bolivian Passion, participating in festivals, parades, and performances as dancer of several traditional styles, tinkus, tobas, Chacarera, Salaque, Macheteros, and Cueca Chaqueña, he can also be found making South American bracelets and selling them in the gentrified parts of New York at regular prices to feed his two Pokemon puppies, Suicune and Gunner. Edward's piece has him between Bolivia and New York City. He tells us about the space between vision and blindness, his mother's transition, as well as his own. Let's listen. I inhale the thickness of the humidity that floats in the air within the Coliseum. My friends and I prepare to go on stage. Here we are, on the pitch black side of the curtains, which are heavy and steady. Not a single bit of light beams through, waiting, isolated in the dark. We know we are next under the spotlight that all the schools in Santa Cruz, Bolivia, are sharing that night. We are participating in Tentayape, a dance competition where schools and institutes compete to be the best. Backstage, I am unable to distinguish between my friends. The dark makes me unsteady, and I don't like it. I can only hear them. I cannot discern the features from their faces. The curtains suddenly reveal all the lights. I encounter the crowd, but most importantly, I catch sight of my mom. I see the excitement in her eyes as she hops out of her seat in the left wing of the Coliseum. Joy and pride emit from her face. She waves, and I wave back. The darkness fades. 
I prepare to dance, but I can still see from the corner of my eye that she is overjoyed. So am I, as this is the first time that she will see me perform. Little do we know that this will also be the last performance she will see before losing her eyesight. My mom had been having problems with her eyesight over the years, but she hadn't given it much thought. I'm just getting old, she'd say, as she'd bashfully rest her right cheek on her shoulder and press her rosy lips together. Her face was decorated in freckles caused by the violent sun rays which had caressed her face in Bolivia. She knew what was coming, but decided not to tell us. She knew we would bury, especially me. It wasn't until her new prescription glasses served no use and an MRI revealed to her a reality that she can no longer hide from plain sight anymore that she finally told us. It's cherry size, she said. I mean, it's not that big. She pinched her thumb to the crest closest to the print of her index finger to show its size. Her voice pitched, cracking mid-sentence as her emotions bled through the canvas that she'd normally held up. She didn't want to be weak. She refused to give into the shadows of the dark. Doctors said it was a tumor that had formed due to an excessive amount of prolactin hormone that had latched onto the pituitary gland. Its size had grown reasonably enough to affect her optical nerves. This news led my living room to become a panic room where my grandmother immediately grabbed her rosary with her stiff fingers caused by a lifetime of tailoring. She began praying as if repeating words would matter. My sister, the delicate one, contorted her face as tears dripped down to form puddles on her collarbones. Then there was me, who was 16 at the time, who simply thought, how is this possible? After finally being reunited, why did luck have this in store for us? When I was 11 and my sister Cynthia was 15, my mom made the tough decision to leave New York, a place she'd worked so hard to get to. My sister had developed an eating disorder that deteriorated her to myrrh, skin, and bones. The American kids had teased her about having fat panda arms, that even her walk was clumsy because of the weight that her legs carried. And that was it. My mom knew my sister needed to be taken out of that environment and decided to take her back to Bolivia. Unlike New York, the city of Santa Cruz de la Sierra in Bolivia Green and fresh, its tropical skies are filled with feathered shades of emerald green, canary yellow, combined with primaries of electric blue and ruby red. People there are different too. Accents envelop you with hospitality, as every slang of Castellano Camba is irresistibly captivating. I loved it there, but everyone thought it was best that Dad and I stay behind. The Tentayape Festival marked the first time I'd been back here for, in two years. The first time I'd seen my mother in two years. Living with dad accelerated my growth because as a 11-year-old kid, I lived in our apartment in solitude. Dad would either be working or vibe reeking of alcohol. I found it entertaining how he would deny his habit as he'd stumble barely balancing the weight of his own body. I preferred it this way. He wouldn't bother me, nor ask me where I had been all day. I re didn't really want to share 
I didn't really want to share that I helped my friends from IS-5 roll a blunt after school and smoke it later in Elmhurst Park after riding our bikes around. Mom was strict because she cared. Dad was lenient because he didn't. I would cook for myself while Dad attempted to make ground beef in the blender. It eventually broke. The person operating it barely knew how to operate himself. One night, when he arrived drunk as a mule, screaming and throwing things out of control, he reached to throw the Jessica McClintock perfume bottle that Mommy had left behind, but I snatched it out of his bare hands. I fled to my room and hid it in the box of valuables next to my Game Boy, as it was the last evidence of her scent that had almost gone extinct in her queen's apartment. Chasing me, he seized me by my mane and dragged me into the living room as the crumbs and staples on the carpet pierced into my face. With his belt, he turned my olive skin into a dark shade of maroon and green. It remained on display on my legs and abdomen for only a few weeks, as opposed to my anger, which was permanent. You're going to be fine, I serenade my mother as I hold her just like she held me so many times. We're back in New York now, this time together hustling so that surgery can be performed as soon as allowed. It isn't long until she is scheduled and is prepared to be taken into surgery. I want to be there with her so that she can see me when she is going in. However, my father, or better yet, Casto, his name, which is how I address him ever since the perfume incident, makes me go to school. He stays with my mom in my place as if she cared to see his face ever again as deteriorated, drained, and oppressed as it is by the liquor. Just as I am obligated to go to school, I am also forced to wear a uniform, a white button down shirt, a tie that strangles me, and dress pants all fours so that everyone feels equal. I just feel pathetic though, especially on this day when I should be with my mom for her surgery. Instead, I stand up, repeating words that are meaningless, etc., until suddenly, the words of morning prayers no longer seem meaningless. It is announced, this morning, we pray for Edward Serrati's mother, who will be undergoing surgery. Turns out, my cousin had told the whole school about my mother's surgery just so that he could stay home and play PC games with people online who he'd never met. Now, he looked like the concerned one, and I was the one who came to school anyway, like it was no big deal. The room falls still and silent, with expressions and gestures from every single one of my classmates' faces. Snickering can be heard from the other end of the room. Why is he even here, they whisper. He must not care for his mother's well-being. After school, I make my way through Little India in Jackson Heights. I am finally feeling a little better. I even exhibit the craters in my cheeks that are caused whenever I expose my teeth. Mom is finally going to be better, I think, finally looking on the bright side while crunching through the auburn shades of fall scattered throughout the street. Arriving at Elmhurst Hospital, the quality of air becomes heavy and thick. Turning the corner, I follow the lines on the floor that resemble the pulse lines that appear on the electrocardiograms from each hospital room that I pass by, as they lead me to my mother's recovery room. 
I finally see her. She has tubes peeking out of her nostrils, bordered with the burgundy shade of dried crust that blood leaves behind. Her face is soaked with salty sweat that no one has bothered to clean despite Costo being there. She hears the crack crunch of leftover autumn on my soles as I arrive. She violently awakens from her slumber, eyes fidgeting as she cries my name out, furiously tapping the edge of her bed, checking if I am there. Droplets of sweat pour past her freckles. She tells us, The last thing I saw were the curtains. I don't know what's wrong. I thought they were going to make things better. She begins to get agitated and throws out blood as the wounds dilate from her nostrils, leaking into her throat, caused by her premature attempt to express herself. Kazuto is just there, still, mute, and motionless, as if someone has paused him. A few weeks later, she is finally able to come home with us, but she still can't see. Not trusting her surroundings, she grasps onto me, as if the ground is a bully waiting to hurt her. We all sit at the table with the exception of my sister. She has already eaten. We each have our cuñapé and our cup of Nescafe coffee. She begins to tell us about losing the light and mentions to us what we look like to her at the moment. Dark. Black. She describes the darkness so obscure that it compares and overshadows the darkness I witnessed that night backstage the night on which she saw me dance for the first and last time. I look at the cuñapé. It has freckles, like mom. As I am comparing the pastry's burnt cheese to my mom's face, it slips between my fingers and lands in the pitch black coffee. It disappears, then reemerges, floating until it is soaked entirely with the dark from the blackness cafe. I fish it out before it sinks and bite it. Every bit of the pastry has been infected, drenched as illness is when spread. It is bitter. It is black. The damage in her optical nerves can be perceived on her exterior features. Her right pupil involuntarily begins to drift to the side as she can no longer control the calibration of her eye. The border that holds her iris is no longer connected in full circle. The limbus cornea's ends reach for each other, rendering them useless, like keychain rings when aged and pulled apart. We're going out to eat for the first time since mom has been discharged. She asks me, do I look funny? I hesitate. No, you look fine, I tell her. She runs her finger through my dark locks, though similar to hers. She can't see the shine, but can feel the fourth day's oil accumulated at my roots as it moistens her fingertips, smudging the excess on her inner blouse, she tells me, andabañate, indicating that it is time for me to wash my hair. Meanwhile, her hair falls in waves, shiny with the herbal essence shampoo. It radiates as she unknowingly sits in front of the sun ray, which strikes her right across the face. Her pupils no longer dilate, and she doesn't look away. She can't see the sun in her eyes, can't tell that it's dangerous to stare at it like that. They don't shine. Her and Costo leave, and my sister and I stay behind. We will meet them later at dinner, but I am still sad to see her go. As she gets into the car, she looks right at me, 
and so on instinct, I wave like I did that night at the Coliseum. Except this time, she doesn't wave back. They drive away, and as they do, trails of tears fall down into my craters. I shut my eyes to stop them, and all I can see is darkness. Wow, that was such a powerful piece. We have Edward the writer here with us today. Hi, Edward. Thank you so much for being with us. Hey, thank you for having me. Before we're jumping into the piece, can we ask you how your mom's doing today? Well, as of today, she's progressing because at the moment of the of the surgery, she lost her vision completely. But as um a few months after followed up, like she started her vision started to open up. So she would tell me that like she could see like a check form mm-hmm. in her right eye. And as of today, um, she's back in Bolivia at presently, but she'll be back by April. So then from there, we're going to see the, her follow-ups because she hasn't been going to any. So we got to check that out. Okay, that's good that she's doing better. Um, that's good to know. Um, I just want to say how incredible it is um, that you painted in our minds such painful scenes um, in such a beautiful way. And um, I just want to know, how was your writing process? What was going through your mind when you wrote this piece? When I first wrote this piece, it was I was I wanted to concentrate on the dance competition because it was like one of the first things I did. Um, and as I went to prog- as I processed through more drafts, um, my professor Majazo she like encouraged me to like because I mentioned like. My mom was in her vision later on, but it wasn't, like, that much emphasized. So then I decided to bring it more presently throughout the piece and then paint a picture of how a person loses their sight and how it inflicts her, their family members and the people that surround them. Yeah, those images are very powerful. I noticed that you don't talk about your own emotions in most of this piece. The piece focused majorly on your mother and everyone surrounding you. The piece is descriptive of your mom and her process, yet I feel this emotion of sadness, kind of like how I imagine I would feel if someone I love was going in the dark like this. Um, When you wrote the piece, did you plan on making the audience feel this way? Yes, I wanted them to feel like as if they were the person going through the experience. I wanted to paint a picture where they would be able to like, feel as nostalgic through reading it, feel like if their mother was in the same situation. Because I I know, like, everybody's weakness is their mother, so I wanted to, like, hit that, like, soft spot in every person. I think it did a great job doing that, because I definitely (laughs) felt that when I read this piece. Um, Yeah. There are many moments in the piece that I wonder if you were hesitant about your listeners judging you, um, for example, when you talk about your relationship with your father, were you ever worried about being judged negatively by your audience? If so, um, how do you feel this influenced your writing process? At first, I didn't include the scene where my father hits me with and with hits me with um and drags me th- with um drags me through the carpet and all that. I um I excluded that from the first pair of drafts. But then after the piece was workshopped in the classroom, people told me, like, why do you call your dad by his first name? And there were, like, many questions arose from that. 
So then um, I decided to incorporate it because I feel like it was important to include, like, as it, it's a creative nonfiction class, so I guess, like, include the whole truth. So it was important to, like, put that in so it, like, they know that I'm not just, like, some obnoxious little kid that calls <laughs> their dad by their first name. Because there's always, like, a reason behind an action, and that was my reason behind my action. And you had a good reason, too. Um, next question is, what would you like your audience to come away with from your piece? I would like What I would like my audience to take away from my piece is to value the moments that they have their parents. Because my mother, like, at first I thought she had abandoned me because I was really young and she left me when I was, like, 11, 10. And I later came to understand that she did it because of a health situation that my sister was going through. So at the moment, I didn't really, like, appreciate my mom's presence. I was just like, oh, whatever. Like, she's she's just my mom. She's always going to be there. But then at the moment when she wasn't there, I remember when she left the first time, like, when she arrived in Miami, she called me, and I was, like, sobbing, like, mad snot down my face. <laughs> I was crying, and I felt like, when she left, I felt like a piece of me left with her. Because the years that followed were very important for me, and I ended up, like, doing things that children don't do. I ended up, like, maturing rapidly throughout those um, those couple of months until I was reunited with her. But when I was reunited with her, it was also still not the same. And after she lost her sight, it was also another part of me that was affected, which even made me, like, mature even more. Like, to seek out a job, to seek out many things, to, like... Because everything I do, I guess, is because of my mom. Because I'm studying currently because of my mom. Because she encouraged me that always education was important. And, like, so that in the future, if I have a similar situation as hers, I will have... I would have the means to have, like the MRI and all the, the procedures to be, so it could be like prevented sooner than her that it was prolonged long enough for it to not be like solved. So what I would like readers to take away from this piece would be to value their parents while they, they have them because they're all we have in the end. Thank you, Edward. Um, thank you so much. For being with us today it has been a pleasure to have you and a delight to listen to your piece um thank you it's been a pleasure to be here thanks so our next speaker is drum roll please you Mayoli hernandez that's me <laughs> Mayoli, our host today is originally from the dominican republic where she lived until she was nine before moving to harlem new york walking and bus riding are her favorite ways to travel She's a writing minor and the vice president of the Latin American Student Organization at John Jay. Her writing has appeared on her Arawak 27 blog and 2014 New York State Assembly collection of poems by Dreamers. Maya, your piece touches upon the space between student and professional world, the space between a job and a career, the gap between client and worker, about having to operate within the space despite the hardships in order to get to where you're going next. Let's listen to the Cheeseless Cheeseburger. Yeah. 
You're standing behind the counter of a fast food restaurant, looking into a line of people that could eat you alive. They don't care that you're 17 years old, that you've only been working here for a few months, or that you graduated with honors from the Orm School. I would like a cheeseburger, no cheese, says a woman in a demanding voice. You mean a hamburger? You reply. She says, no, I want a cheeseburger without cheese. And make sure they don't put cheese on it. I'm going to be mad as hell if they put cheese on it. You say, yes, ma'am. And your eyes wander for a second above her head. The restaurant is big with bright colors that create a happy mood. The walls are adorned with posters of gigantic burgers with melted cheese, perfectly placed pickles, spread out onions, lettuce, ketchup, and, of course, the juicy meat. Your gaze turns back to the lady. Her mouth is still moving, but you can't hear what she's saying over your own thoughts. She looks angry. The woman is short. She has red hair, but black roots surround her scalp. You notice that the woman flails her arms when she speaks to you. You know better than to argue, so you say, Okay, ma'am, again, and you press the red button on the top of the monitor that says, No, and then the yellow button that says, Cheese. After you slide her debit card on the side of the cash register, you give her a receipt with a bold 127. You run to the kitchen because you don't want your coworkers to make a mistake. You want to let them know that this lady is a difficult customer and that she doesn't want cheese on her cheeseburger. As you rush to the back, you begin to feel the heat of the kitchen. Past the ice cream machine, you are always reminded by the heat wave that attacks you that your coworkers making sandwiches in the back don't have any air conditioning. You begin to melt faster than the ice cream in the little girl's hands that stares at you with bug eyes and an ice cream mustache before she asks you, Excuse me, miss? Can I have some ketchup? You look at the beige counter that is always full with all kinds of stuff, especially with ketchup packets. You and your fellow co-workers would rather carry 10 pounds of ketchup packets all at once from the basement rather than to fly down the stairs every time a customer asks for the red condiment. Listen, Jahedi, don't put cheese on the burger. You quickly tell your co-worker. Jahedi says, I know, it's a hamburger. You reply with a simple, I know, but you know how they get. She knows exactly what you mean by how they get. You stare at your colleagues' annoyed faces. Jahedi purses her lips and her eyes drop when she looks at the slices of bread on the table. Her brown fingers reach for the red tongs before she carefully smacks the meat onto the burger. Rosauri, on the other hand, looks up the, at the heating tray, her full lips perfectly visible. She exhales fast, a clear attempt to cool herself down from the incredible heat that emanates from the burner, fryer, and the heating trays all around you. You smell the oil burning with the chicken tenders, so you quickly glance at the fryer. Bits of chicken squares are grouped together and are almost invisible under the sheet of oil that covers them. Hmm, how come it doesn't bubble? You wonder before running back to the front to attend to the red-headed lady and the little girl. You are reminded of how lucky you are to be in the front, right next to the lobby because at least you get a wave of the air conditioning from the eating area. The catch, however, is that you get to smile to the ladies who demand that there's no cheese on their cheeseburgers and to guys who change their orders when you tell them there is no Wi-Fi in the store.
So in the split second that you grab the ketchup packets and hand them to the little girl, you think back to the handsome guy who came in, began to order a chicken sandwich, and asked if there was Wi-Fi in the store. When you replied, no, there's no Wi-Fi at this Burger King, he replied, I'll have a Whopper then. You have no idea why or how, whether there is Wi-Fi in the store or not, has influenced this man's preference for beef over chicken. You're just here to smile, even though you know, and even they know, that the customer is not always right. Yet, that is not what the manager tells you, even after the day you witness the customer throw his half-eaten food at him. You are sometimes unsure of whether you're working in a mental institution or at a Burger King on 141st Street. Ma'am, your burger will be done soon, you reassure the lady with the red hair. She replies, no cheese, right? I said no cheese. To which you answer her, yes, ma'am, I told them no cheese in the kitchen. The day is bright. That Adele song plays on the radio. Never mind, I'll find someone like you. And you feel nostalgic for the summers when you didn't have to work. You yell for your coworker. Rosauri to take food orders while you run to the other side and delight the crowd by screaming numbers, carefully closing the mouth of their bags by rolling. When they see you carrying the bags, your arms extend toward them. You are Santa Claus, and it is like Christmas here at Burger King. Rosauri, take the orders, please. I need to give out the food. The monitor is clear when the blue words pop up on the screen. There are so many people ordering that some orders have gotten erased. You ask Rosauri, what were the first few orders? You are giving them everything they want. Fries, chicken tenders, kids' meals. Yep, Burger King is like Christmas all year round, you think to yourself. Finally, you arrive at the cheeseburger, no cheese order. You turn back to look at the red-headed lady and you find that she is glaring at you. You grab the burger from the heating tray and you burn your index finger. Concho, you think in your head, while you press a newly forming blister to your palm with all your might in an attempt to numb the pain. You are about to hand the bag to the woman, and you notice that she already looks annoyed. You think about the fact that Yahedi has handed you the wrong order before. You yell the lady's number, so that she knows it's her order. 44! Your throat is dry, so your voice sounds a bit shaky. The woman grabs the bag from you, perhaps sensing your fear. Thanks, she says. She grabs the bag like you're some kind of liar. Like you've been lying to her all her life, even though you just met her. She wants to know if you've kept your word. You stare at her for the few seconds that it takes her to open the bag and inspect the burger. You stare because you're just as anxious as she is to find out what Jahedi has put on it. You hope, dream, pray not to get a glance of the melted cheddar cheese. Damn, there's cheese, you whisper to yourself before the woman opens her mouth. She is outraged. What the hell, she burst. You apologize, but she is already yelling. Robert, your manager, will be upstairs any minute if this continues. He hears everything, knows everything, gets mad at everything, and it doesn't help that the lady says that she will have you fired. Listen, ma'am, we'll give you a new one, you say softly, hoping she'll lower her volume. Your heart is racing, and you hope the lady doesn't ask for the manager. I don't want to wait, she says. This is too damn much. I can't believe it. Her black and red ponytail swings from side to side with each uttered word. By now, you can't smell the chicken or the fries. All you can smell is the hot air and the oil from the burner. Jahedi, make her a new one. You say calmly, even though you feel like screaming at the top of your lungs, but you can't because your throat is too dry.
Jahedi insists that she made the burger without cheese and that it should be on the heating tray in the front. Did you check the heating tray? She asks. All you can think of is a robber climbing the stairs any minute now. You know he heard the yelling. He will lecture you and you will stare at his gigantic mustache because most of the time that he talks to you, it appears as if the mustache is talking to you and not him. Robert is too big of a man and you don't want to look him in the eyes while he tells you again that no matter what, the customer is always right. The lady is impatient. I want to see the manager, she demands. His footsteps bang the stairs as he climbs them one by one. You can hear his heavy breathing and the ah that usually comes before the this damn leg is killing me. Remembering his bad leg, you realize that you have about 40 to 50 extra seconds to solve this. If you made it, then where is it? You urge Jahedi to tell you. You look at her with big eyes and point to the stairs while you draw the word Robert in the air. She drops a piece of bread and rushes to the front. Let's see, she says. Her eyes wander around the heating train. She inspects the cover of each burger. The lady demands again, where the hell is the manager? Oh my God, this is it. You are so fired. You take a glance at the stairs. You estimate that Robert is five stair steps away from arriving at the top floor. Aha! Uh -huh. Here it is, says Jahedi. She holds the burger up to the light the way you imagined you would hold your puppy if you had one after seeing the movie The Lion King. I didn't mark it, she says. There is no time for reprisals or sermons. You grab the burger. Robert must be only two steps away now, you say. Ma'am, here's your cheeseburger, no cheese. I would also like to offer you some free fries for the wait. These are large fries, ma'am. The lady looks at you with untrusting eyes. She scrutinizes the bag, the fries, and the burger. Finally, after seemingly decided that this is a good deal, she says, Okay, and walks out. As the lady is opening the front door to exit the store, Robert finally reaches the kitchen floor and asks, What the hell is going on here? You shrug as if to say, what? Everything is fine here. And in that moment, you can't help but dream about the day you finally graduate from college and get a job that pays so well that you feel that dealing with difficult people is actually worth it. So I have to ask you, Miley, do you like cheeseless cheeseburgers? You know what, Sam? They are my favorite. <laughs> I love them. I absolutely love them. Yes. <laughs> Good, <Yes>. to <laughs> <laughs> Good to know. Um, but now to get seriously to the questions. Um, I think you do a great job at using unique images in your story to present the environment and correlations. Uh, how do you create these images to help the reader experience the environment around you? Um, well, I sat down and really thought about, um, the moment and the, the experience that I was living through while I was working at Burger King. And I really wanted to be descriptive for people to, um, that a lot of people don't know what it's like to work at a fast food restaurant. And a lot of people are very critical of, of fast food workers. Um, so I wanted to be very descriptive in the imagery that I provided for the reader or the listener. And it was just a process of me sitting and really thinking about, you know, where the burner was, where the fryer is, how hot it was, how cold it was, how the clients um, approached me as a cashier and how I had to bounce back and forth between the kitchen and and the cash register, kind of like balance everything at the same time. And yeah, I also noticed that you use second person perspective. I just want to know, like, what made you choose that? 
Uh, after reading a couple of pieces in our creative nonfiction class, Creative Nonfiction 245 with Professor Madrasso, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I really liked the second person perspective. At first, I was a little hesitant about it because um, I kind of wanted to put myself in the moment. And when I use second person perspective, I found myself kind of detached from the piece. So um, the first draft that I did was actually a uh, first person perspective. And then I ended up changing it to second person. And uh, I think that I was overpowered by the feeling of wanting the, my audience to really feel uh, how I felt in the moment. And I felt like second person perspective would be perfect um, for them to imagine themselves in my situation at the time. Good choice. Um, from your story, we see the clients that you have are some difficult people. How is dealing with them on a daily basis? Oh, they're not difficult. <laughs> <laughs> they're lovely. <laughs> That's no. sarcasm. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, um, I did get a lot of difficult people. Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, I I try to handle it like you know like a professional would. I try to be polite. Uh, there were some instances where um, a lot of clients would get well, some not a lot, but some clients would get aggressive to the point that I had this the the you know the lady raise her voice, um, and that was unfortunately that was not the only instance where people could like they come in and they really think that they own you because you're working at a fast food restaurant or that you know like she said like she can have you fired. Um, or cursed at you and um, there were instances that I felt really bad um, but I knew like I'm working a job you know I'm here uh, working a decent job I don't think that there's anything wrong with working on fast food like I was proud of myself for for that right. and I didn't let that um, kind of like push me down like I I had people um, come in and say like like you're just a fast food worker kind of to kind of wanting to like diminish where I was in life and I had people advise me like why don't you tell them that you're in college why don't you tell them that you're doing these things and I'm like they don't have to know that that's irrelevant you know what I mean mm. I'm here this is good enough right now they you go girl <laughs> <laughs> um the climax of your piece was when your manager was walking up the steps as a listener I well any listener they feel the intensity and importance of the time um, how did you create such a big attention scene and how nervous were you and when you, this was really happening in the moment? Um, so I, I, I was kind of new at the time. Um, so I wanted to, you know, do everything well. I was really scared uh, of actually getting fired. Uh, I was 17 years old. This woman is yelling at me, telling me that you know, she's going to have me fired. Uh, my manager, I, I tried to play with the intensity Oh, my manager had a bad leg and he would walk slowly. But when he got up the stairs, you know that things are going to get real. <laughs> <laughs> because he would literally like stand you there and talk to you. And he had a huge mustache. He's like giant. He's really big. Um, Robert. Um, so it was kind of intimidating um, for me at the time. Um, and I knew like he walked really slow. Um, so I, I knew that I wanted to incorporate that into the piece uh, and just, I knew that I had, you know, a couple of more seconds before we got that cheese, cheeseless <laughs> cheeseburger, which is really a hamburger. <laughs> um, um, I had to find that. Uh, and I knew that I had a couple of seconds and I, I played with that uh, a little bit. Um, the techniques, um, as creative nonfiction writers, we we have uh, the option to employ different techniques. Um, and that was the 
the narrative that I chose to go with. Would you ever work at Burger King again? <laughs> I, I have been offered by my old manager. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have friends at Burger King, and I sometimes I go back. I say hi, and the manager's always like, when are you coming back? And I'm like, I don't you know. <laughs> I moved on. <laughs> um, but... Um, I don't know. I I don't want to say definitely no, um, but I see myself doing other things now. Um, now that I'm in school, I'm ready to graduate. I'm ready to, you know, pursue like my dreams. Um, for me, that was more of like, a, you know, trying to help my mother out, trying to find my find a way to finance like my own things as a teenager. Um, but, you know, that that's just me. Uh, I realized that a lot of people that work at fast food restaurants are not teenagers. They are people with kids. They work. But um, for me right now, I'm ready to transition. That's good. And for the last question, what would you like the listener to come away with from your piece? From my piece? You should really, when when people go into fast food restaurants, they should really be polite. <laughs> please, please. <laughs> Um, I I think that, you know, in, in the, the stress of the their daily lives or their problems or whatever it is, I think people forget that the person behind the counter or the person in the kitchen making their food is an actual human being with feelings and with their own problems and that are, you know, that it's going through things and that it's there because they need the job and they're there to support their families or, I don't know, um, you know, buy books or support whatever finances they have to support um that was a lot of support but <laughs> but uh yeah you should always be polite you should always be polite right every person is an actual person <laughs> yeah exactly well thank you Myoli. thank you sam and thank you all for listening to our first episode of life out loud a new nonfiction podcast series where we make stories and stories make us see you next week and remember you can always tune in at lifeoutloudpodcast.com <laughs>